Hello folks, Dominic here, with a very quick disclaimer. In this episode, I discuss the work of Colonel Howard Wies, who explored the Giza Plateau and its monuments in the late 1830s. Wies is noteworthy for his use of explosives within the pyramids as a way to open passages and chambers. A couple of times in my narrative, I mistakenly describe these explosives as dynamite, but dynamite was not invented until 1867, nearly 30 years after Wies' work. Quite simply, this was a brain slip. I'm not a military historian, and I'm not especially interested in explosives on a personal level, so I unthinkingly conflated gunpowder and dynamite in my head. My sincere apologies to anyone who is interested in explosives. I hope you will forgive this lapse, and enjoy the story anyway. Now then, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast mini-episode. This is The Lost and Found, the legacy of Menkaura. It is a tale of early archaeology, of unfortunate mishaps, and also evocative memories. Across four and a half thousand years, the artifacts, stories, and memories of Menkaura have undergone a curious journey. Today, we explore them. Men Kaurā, or Men Kaurē, was the penultimate ruler of the 4th dynasty. He ruled Egypt sometime around 2520 BCE, approximately, and he has an intriguing legacy. Men Kaurā is the king responsible for the third pyramid at Giza. It is the smallest pyramid on the plateau, and it is the one that is most often overlooked by tourists and commentators, which is a shame because, as we will see, there are many fascinating stories and details contained within this monument. The name Men Kaurā, or Men Kaurē, translates roughly as The Ka spirits of Ra are established or firm. It is a classic name of the late 4th dynasty, praising the sun god Ra, and confirming his supremacy and power as a royal god. The king, Men Kaurā, embodies the favour of Ra, and he rules Earth as a divine sun or incarnation of the deity himself. Men Kaurā is not well known among the general public, and even among Egyptologists he is one of the minor figures in the historical narrative. Which is surprising, because out of the three rulers who commissioned pyramids at Giza, it was Men Kaurā that enjoyed the most positive reputation. 2,000 years after his death, Men Kaurā was described by Greek authors like Herodotus and the Roman Diodorus Siculus. Both of these authors praised Men Kaurā, describing him as of good temperament and a just ruler who listened to the petitions and concerns of his people and acted justly as a ruler of the land. This stands in contrast to Men Kaurā's predecessors, the great rulers Kafra and Khufu. Both of them enjoyed a negative legacy among the Greek and Roman authors, who described Khufu and Kafra as megalomaniacs, even tyrants, who oppressed their people. Compared to them, Menkaura comes across as a breath of fresh air. Whether this depiction is accurate or the product of 2,000 years of storytelling, 
we may never exactly know. But when you visit the Pyramids of Giza, it is Menkaura, the owner of the smallest monument, who enjoys the kindest legacy. The small size of Menkaura's pyramid is noteworthy, and when you compare it to the structures of his predecessors, it appears positively tiny. Originally, the pyramid was just 61.8 metres tall, or 203 feet. This is less than half the height of the Great Pyramid, and the volume of Menkaura's monument, in terms of stone and overall area, is a mere fraction of its larger cousins. At a glance, the pyramid seems diminutive, one of the smallest in the era of its construction. But as is so often the case, looks can be deceiving. Beneath the surface, the pyramid of Menkaura has many fascinating features, and the stories of its exploration and preservation are not just the stuff of modern archaeology, they stretch back more than 2,000 years. The pyramid of Menkaura and the artifacts contained within have a fascinating legacy. Today, I would like to explore it. Our story begins in August of 1837. It was the beginning of the Victorian era, literally. Queen Victoria had assumed the throne of Great Britain just two months earlier. In Egypt, a man named Howard Wies was leading an excavation. Richard Howard Wies is a noteworthy name in the early history of Egyptology. He doesn't have a great reputation today, and we'll see why but he was one of the first individuals to lead large-scale excavations on the Giza Plateau in an attempt to explore and document the enormous monuments. In August of 1837, Visa's excavation team were hard at work on the Third Pyramid, that is, the Pyramid of Menkaura. The Egyptian workers, employed by Vis and his associates, were clearing sand and rubble from the base of the monument, where it had accumulated over the course of centuries. They were also trying to find the entrance to the structure. In 1837, the entry corridor for the Third Pyramid at Giza was officially unknown. Sometime after antiquity or the Middle Ages, it had disappeared beneath the accumulation of sand and rubble, so the excavation team had their work cut out for them. Faced with this challenge, Howard Wies had some unusual solutions. At one point, he organised the use of dynamite to attempt to blow a hole in the side of the pyramid and expose the passages that he thought might be hidden behind a stone. Wies and his dynamite are one of the more infamous passages in the history of Egyptology. If you have ever heard tales of explorers detonating explosives in the monuments, this is where that comes from. It was part of Wies's approach. He used dynamite on the Pyramid of Menkaura, and he even used it in the Great Pyramid. Wies was quite fond of his explosives, as a way to open new passages and find concealed chambers. It's an ugly chapter in early Egyptology, but it is what it is. Ironically, it was not the dynamite that helped Wies open the Pyramid of Menkaura. Eventually, the entrance to the monument was discovered by good old-fashioned clearance, the Egyptian labourers removed sand and rubble, and found the opening which led to the descending passageway. You can see the workers undertaking this difficult and challenging project in artists' impressions made by an illustrator who was accompanying the expedition. 
in the picture. The monument towers overhead, while long trains of Egyptians haul at ropes to pull boulders out of the sand and remove them from the base of the monument. The clearance work must have been enormous. The pyramid was opened, but the stories were only just beginning. The Monument of Menkaura, as revealed by Visa's excavation team, contains a wealth of information. Some of these come from the artifacts that lay within the pyramid, and some come from the pyramid itself, its architecture and decoration, both of which include some rather strange details. This is a monument well worth exploring. So, let's take a tour. Imagine yourself at Giza, standing before the Pyramid of Menkaura. You are before the entrance to the monument, which is located on the north face of the pyramid. Before you stands a staircase made of wood, leading from the ground level up to the entrance passage. You begin your ascent, and as you do, take a look over to the left-hand side. On the outer face of the pyramid, carved into the casing stones, there is a series of hieroglyphs. These hieroglyphs are a later addition, but they have their own fascinating story related to Menkaura's pyramid. We'll come back to them later. For now, let's focus on the entrance. As you approach the top of the stairs, the granite stones which form the casing loom overhead. Some of them are finished, smoothed by the ancient builders. Others are still rough, where the stonemasons did not finish their work following the king's death. You'll have to duck down to make your way into the entrance. Take a moment to catch your breath, and then enter the pyramid itself. You begin by descending a long, sloping passage. Like many pyramids, Menkaura's monument has a complex of chambers and corridors dug directly into the bedrock. To reach those subterranean passages, you must clamber down a long, sloping corridor. There are wooden railings and a walkway to assist you, but at times you will need to crouch, perhaps even bend double to make your way along the passage. Behind you, the light will slowly diminish as the world of the living recedes, and you enter the world of the dead. As you reach the bottom, the passageway levels out into a smooth, flat corridor. You duck through a low doorway, and suddenly you are in a room. A small square chamber is the first stop on our tour of Menkaura's monument. This chamber is noteworthy because it has an unusual decoration. For the most part, the pyramids at Giza are completely undecorated, nothing adorning the walls or embellishing the internal structures. Menkaura's is different. The first chamber of his pyramid is decorated with a series of rectangles. These are evenly spaced along the wall, in a series of recessed panels or niches. Egyptologists call this style of decoration a palace facade decor. It appears on numerous Old Kingdom monuments, especially funerary structures, and the most likely interpretation is that it resembles or recreates the outer walls of ancient Egyptian palaces. The king's residence on earth would naturally have security structures, like walls, to separate it and protect it from the outside world. From archaeological work at other sites, we know that these walls often had the same pattern of recesses and niches that we see in the chamber of Menkaura. So right at the start of our subterranean journey, it seems that Menkaura is doing something different for his afterlife world. Instead of a smooth, unadorned series of passages, 
he commissioned something more homely, a palace beneath the pyramid in which he could live eternally. It's a lovely feature. From the small room that is decorated like a palace, you continue along another corridor. Then, suddenly, you enter a large rectangular chamber. This chamber stretches out to your right, facing east and west, along the axis of sunrise and sunset. At the far end of the chamber, from where you come in, there is a slightly separated space, like an annex. The floor of this annex is sunk down into the earth, as if it once contained a coffin or sarcophagus. At a glance, this might seem like the burial place of the king. So far, the journey into Menkaura's pyramid is, architecturally, pretty similar to that of Kafra before him. And maybe for ancient tomb robbers, plumbing their way through these depths by candlelight and in haste, they might enter this chamber, see the annex at the far end, and assume they had reached the king's burial. The truth is quite different. In the very centre of this hall, the floor suddenly opens up. A passageway has been cut directly into the rock at the very heart of this chamber. Originally, this passage was probably covered over with stones, concealing it from view, and hiding what lay beneath. Those covering stones are gone now, and the passage is visible to all who enter. It is this passage which leads to the true burial chamber. Making your way down the sloping corridor, stepping carefully on wooden floorboards, you will come to a fork in the road. On your right, there is a rectangular room, jutting off facing north. To your left, there is another room, which at a glance is nothing impressive, just another rectangular space. But it's the left-hand room that we are most interested in. Step through the doorway, and you will enter another rectangular hall. This time, the hall has a curved roof, bending over the top in a smooth arch. The arch is made of enormous slabs of stone that were carefully laid across the roof of the chamber, and then carved back to form a smooth curve. So it's not a classic arch in the Roman sense, where the stones are resting against one another and using gravity to maintain stability. But it's a clever illusion, and it gives this chamber its own quiet majesty. You are now standing in Menkaura's burial chamber. Superficially, there is not much to see. The walls are made of smooth blocks of stone, but they are undecorated. The floor used to have paving stones, but some of these have been broken and smashed up in antiquity, and now there are gaps in the floor, leading to an uneven surface. Today, it's not much to look at, but that wasn't always the case. In 1837, Colonel Wies and his colleagues entered these passages for the first time. It was August the 1st, a Tuesday, and they and their team laboriously cleared sand and rubble from the underground passages. They entered the monument and descended that sloping corridor, passed through the decorated square chamber, along the next corridor, and they entered the first rectangular hall. Along the way, they made measurements and records of the various rooms as they encountered them. They also made illustrations. An artist who was accompanying the expedition made evocative drawings of the various rooms they encountered. In one scene, we find the first rectangular hall, with its sunken passage in the floor, lit by a pair of local guides. The Egyptians hold up candles to illuminate the smooth stone walls, and the shadowy recesses loom darkly. These drawings are some of my favourites from the entire Giza necropolis. 
the artist avoids dramatization or overemphasizing the grandeur of the expedition. Instead, he opts for something simpler, but at the same time, all the more powerful. Out of all the drawings from the Giza pyramids, these illustrations, I think, are the most inspiring and evocative. Colonel Wies and his team made their way deeper into the monument. Eventually, they reached the burial chamber. At first, they were disappointed by the lack of treasures or furnishings. The pyramid had been violated and robbed centuries before. There had definitely been some entrance during the medieval period, because Wies and his team found Arabic inscriptions on the walls. This included the name of a man called Muhammad Rasul. We have no idea who that is, but apparently he entered the burial chamber many centuries ago. As interesting as small details like that may be, for the European explorers, the results were initially disappointing. There was nothing to find. Well, almost nothing. In one corner of the room, Wies and his colleagues discovered a sarcophagus. A rectangular casket made of basalt stood against the far wall of the chamber. This wasn't the first sarcophagus found at Giza. The pyramids of Khufu and Kafra also had them. But Menkaura's was definitely the most interesting. The sarcophagi of Khufu and Kafra are simple, smooth stone. They are made of heavy slabs which have been hollowed out to form the rectangular caskets. But beyond that stonework, they include no external decoration or interesting features. Menkaura's was a different case entirely. Unlike its predecessors, the sarcophagus of Menkaura is decorated. The outer surface is covered in a series of recesses, niches, and panels, which together give the appearance of a building. The sarcophagus of Menkaura was decorated with a palace facade, just like that chamber we visited earlier. Apparently, Menkaura's decorative inspirations went even further than the architecture. When it came to commissioning his place of rest, he decided to have his own miniature palace. There were no hieroglyphs, at least none that are recorded in the artist's copies, but the style of this sarcophagus was distinctive and elaborate, and compared to these simple, unadorned caskets of his predecessors, Menkaura's sarcophagus would have been far more time-consuming to produce. This might give a sense of Menkaura's priorities. Although his pyramid is small, the finer details are still quite impressive, and I do wonder if, originally, the king wanted to decorate all of his chambers with this elaborate facade. Menkaura died before his monument was completed, and it was finished hastily by his successor, so the monument we see today is not the full vision. I do wonder if, had he lived longer, the king might have created a most elaborate and beautiful underground tomb. So Menkaura's sarcophagus, his stone casket, is a beautiful piece of work. Apparently, the excavation team thought so as well. Immediately on discovering the sarcophagus, Colonel Wies decided to remove it from the monument. His justification is strange, and I'll let his account speak for itself. Wies wrote the following, quote, As the sarcophagus would have been destroyed had it remained in the pyramid, I resolved to send it to the British Museum. End quote. The idea that Menkaura's sarcophagus would be destroyed is hard to credit. 
other sarcophagi, like those of Khafra and Khufu, and ones found in the different tombs of Giza, are all perfectly intact, and have not been vandalised or destroyed by locals. We can't really argue with a dead man, but Visa's justification does feel particularly weak. The point is, he wanted to take the sarcophagus, and he resolved to do so. Subsequently, it fell to the excavation team to organise the casket's removal. This was quite a difficult undertaking. Wies described the operation as follows, quote, The difficulties with which my colleague had to contend in this operation were not trifling. One of the ramps in the inclined passageway had to be removed in order to get into the large apartment, where the sarcophagus was placed upon trunks, and the blocks in the anteroom had to be gotten rid of. By means of a number of men, and of a crab at the mouth of the pyramid, the sarcophagus had been conveyed halfway up when, owing to the roughness of the bottom, the tracks on one side gave way. As they could not be repaired for want of space, the sarcophagus was slowly lifted by levers, and got out by degrees, which, considering that its weight was nearly three tons, was an arduous undertaking. It was, however, at last safely hauled out, and placed on a proper carriage, in which, with the assistance of planks, it was drawn over the rocks and sands to the encampment, and afterwards cased with strong timbers to be sent to the British Museum. End quote. Like his earlier use of dynamite, we get hints of Visa's rather unscrupulous approach to preservation. He mentions removing several stone blocks and damaging parts of the corridors and chambers in order to safely transport the sarcophagus. Questionable methods aside, the task was achieved. By careful organisation and sheer elbow grease, the excavation team, mainly the Egyptian labourers, were able to remove their ancestor's casket. They packed it up for safe transportation and prepared to send it to the British Museum. This is where the story turns slightly tragic. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. By autumn of 1838, Vase and his team had transported the sarcophagus to Alexandria on the Mediterranean coast. There, they loaded it up upon a merchant ship. This was an English vessel called the Beatrice. It set sail from Alexandria, making a standard journey through the Mediterranean, and heading for England. Along the way, the Beatrice stopped at the port of Malta, and then at Livorno on the Italian coast. Subsequently, the Beatrice headed west, towards Spain, where it would pass Gibraltar and Tangier as it entered the Atlantic Ocean, and then headed north to England. Sadly, it never reached its destination. Somewhere along its route through the Mediterranean Sea, the merchant ship Beatrice foundered and sank, and it took the sarcophagus of Menkaura down with it. The sailors on the Beatrice were okay, more on that in a moment, but the contents of the ship were entirely lost. 
Frustratingly, the exact location of the wreck remains something of a mystery. We know the ship departed Livorno, but following that, there are no conclusive records of its route. Hypothetically, the wreck could be anywhere in the western Mediterranean. That's a rather large area to explore. Fortunately, a few historical details survive to suggest a possible area of discovery. A Spanish Egyptologist named Esteban Yagostera Cuenca has studied the available historical information and suggests that the Beatrice most likely sank near Cartagena. This is on the southeastern coast of the Iberian Peninsula. Examining the historical records, particularly from the vicinity, Cuenca noted that the crew of the Beatrice were able to make their way ashore following the wreck, so the ship must have gone down somewhere not too far from the coast. That is a good starting point. Unfortunately, another Egyptologist, Paul Boughton, has noted that this particular region is under the jurisdiction of the Spanish military, specifically their submarine routes. With that in mind, it seems quite unlikely that a scientific expedition would get official permission to go underwater, map, and explore this area. It might happen, one day, but in 2023, the odds seem quite remote. So for now, the wreck of the Beatrice and the sarcophagus of Menkaura within its hold are stubbornly out of reach. On account of the shipwreck, the sarcophagus of Menkaura now lies at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. This was a terrible loss, both for Egyptology, human heritage, and Menkaure's own afterlife. The stone casket was supposed to preserve his body, and failing that, it should at least provide a place that his soul could return to rest. Perhaps, given its supernatural state, the soul of Menkaure can traverse the underwater passages without too much trouble. But from a material point of view, this is a rather sad state of affairs. Fortunately, there were some positive findings and outcomes from the Vise excavation. Besides the dynamite that damaged the monument, and besides the wreck of the sarcophagus, it was not a total catastrophe for Menkaura's legacy. You see, although they lost the sarcophagus, Vise's excavation team did find another piece of Menkaura's funerary items. In the depths of the pyramid, within the burial chamber, the team also found a coffin. The coffin lay within the stone sarcophagus. It was made from high-quality wood, and it bore hieroglyphs upon the surface. Those hieroglyphs included a cartouche, the name of a king. That name was Menkaura, so the coffin belongs to this king. However, there is an interesting wrinkle. The coffin itself is anthropoid, that is, human-shaped, the sort of classic Egyptian-style coffin that you might normally imagine. But that style of coffin, shaped like a human, did not come into use or fashion until much later than Menkaura's reign. During the Old Kingdom, when he was alive, Egyptian coffins were more simple. They tended to be rectangular, maybe decorated with paintings and inscriptions, but nothing too fancy in the overall workmanship. So we have an interesting situation. Within the sarcophagus of Menkaura, underneath his pyramid, there was a wooden coffin. It has the names of Menkaura, but the design and shape dates to a later period. What exactly is going on? 
archaeologists, Egyptologists, and art historians are able to date this coffin to a much later period than Menkaura's reign. They can tell this through a couple of ways. First of all, there is the style of the coffin itself, that anthropoid or human shape, which comes into fashion much later than Menkaura. Then there are the hieroglyphs. Language historians and art historians are able to date hieroglyphic texts based on certain noteworthy features. For example, there is the style of the hieroglyphs themselves, which did change over time as different methods came and fell out of fashion. There is the grammar of the piece, which reflects changes in the Egyptian language. And there is the content of the inscription itself. The texts on Menkaura's coffin belong to a body of religious literature. These are the pyramid texts. The pyramid texts are, to date, Egypt's oldest known corpus of funerary and religious literature. The pyramid texts contain a vast body of writings, divided into chapters or spells, which would help protect and guide the deceased into the next world. You may have heard of the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the most famous of their funerary writings. Well, the pyramid texts are the earliest incarnation of that particular genre. At least, the earliest we know about. Anyway, the text on Menkaura's coffin comes from the pyramid texts. It refers to the king's immortality in the next world, and specifically, his ascent to the sky. The text on Menkaura's coffin goes like this. Usir nasubiti, Menkaura ankjet, mes enpet uer nut, iwau geb, Peseshes mutek nut herek em rennes en sechtapet, redidenes wenek em necher en heftiuek, nesubiti menkaura ank jet. That is a rough pronunciation based on Egyptological conventions and academic reconstructions. The translation of this text is easier to pin down. It says, quote, The Osiris, the king of southern and northern Egypt, Menkaura, who lives forever, born of the sky, conceived by the goddess Nut, the heir of the god Geb. O Menkaura, your mother, Nut, is above you, in her name of the mystery of the sky. She has made you, Menkaura, a god whose enemies do not exist, the king of southern and northern Egypt, Menkaura, who lives forever. End quote. It's a beautiful text that helps communicate the essentially divine nature of the Egyptian kings, especially after their death when they transformed into spirits and gods. They journeyed into the sky to unite with their celestial parents. This text both praises Menkaura, but also offers wishes for his immortality. And the invocation of Nut, the sky goddess, and Geb, the earth god, help connect the spirit of Menkaura to the above and the below. It's a beautiful little piece. As I said, the pyramid texts are not recorded during the time of Menkaura. They might have been used by priests who were working in the temples and reading from papyrus, but archaeologically speaking, pyramid texts are not documented until more than a century after this king. So the presence of these pyramid texts on a wooden coffin with a distinctly later shape and design suggests that Menkaura's wooden casket was made long after his actual death. The next question is, who would do that? 
who would make a new coffin for Menkaura, why would they do that, and when might it have happened? To answer this question, we need to go back outside of Menkaura's monument. Leaving the burial chamber, you make your way back up the passages, back to the surface. The bright light of Giza shines upon you as you emerge into the daytime world. You are in the world of the living, welcome back. And as you emerge from the corridor, you might stand on the wooden platform at the top of the stairs which ascend Menkaura's pyramid. As you do, take a look to your right. On the outside face of Menkaura's monument, carved into the smooth casing stones, there is a hieroglyphic inscription. This inscription was added long after Menkaura's death, and it sheds light on the curious features within. The text itself records a restoration of Menkaura's burial. A later king investigated the pyramid of Menkaura, learned that it had been violated or robbed, and organized the renewal or reburial of the king's artifacts. That king recorded his work in the hieroglyphic inscription. And today, Egyptologists have studied and translated this record to piece together what might have happened. The text belongs to a ruler named Apris. Apris lived around 580 BCE, almost 2,000 years after Menkaura. Imagine if today somebody renewed the burial of one of the early Roman emperors, and they added a plaque next to their work to record their deed. That is the timescale we are talking about. By the time of King Apris, Menkaura had been dead for almost two millennia. Naturally, in that time, the pyramids at Giza had been visited repeatedly, and in some cases, they had been violated and robbed by later generations. It appears that during the reign of King Apris, another one of these robberies or violations occurred. And when the king learned of this, he dispatched royal officials to investigate the situation. He refers to this investigation as going to the pyramid and, quote, revealing its secret. Essentially, they opened the monument, crept down into the chambers, and uncovered what lay within. That must have been quite a solemn occasion. For one thing, they were entering the halls of a supposed god, a divine ruler who had lived in ages past. Two, they did not necessarily know what they would find. Were the furnishings of Menkaura intact, or would they find a desecrated, despoiled grave? Apris does not tell us what he found, or if he did, that part of the text has been lost. But he does say that having revealed the secret of this pyramid, he organized a renewal of the burial. Apris talks about reviving the name of Menkaura, and furnishing his burial with every beautiful thing. This is a slightly elaborate way of saying Apris and his officials organized a new set of furnishings and equipment for Menkaura's burial. That is probably the explanation for that strange wooden coffin. The wooden coffin is manufactured in a style that fits with the period of Apris, and the texts which are recorded on its body were also popular during the time of that king. Apris lived in a period that we call the 26th dynasty, and that time the kings of Egypt were deeply interested in their ancient forebears, and they especially looked to the Old Kingdom as sources of inspiration, legitimacy, and religious meaning. Apparently, Apris commissioned a new wooden casket for this long-dead ruler. 
he added a text on its body to preserve the name of Menkaura, and maybe Apris and his officials added new items to Menkaura's grave. By doing this, they ensured the immortality of the ancient king, which in Egyptian is described as causing his name to live. So this is one of our best records for the investigation and renewal of ancient monuments during the time of the pharaohs themselves. Apris and his representatives seem to have investigated the pyramid of Menkaura, and when they found it damaged and violated, they made the effort to restore the burial. Subsequently, Apris recorded his work on the outer face of the monument. That might sound strange. Wasn't that essentially advertising to anyone that, hey, there are new treasures inside? Well, presumably Apris was banking on the average tomb robber not having sufficient literacy to read the text, or concerns about security were superseded by the need to glorify his own contributions, which ultimately connected Apris with the ancient Menkaura, strengthening the legitimacy of the later ruler. Anyway, since its inscription two and a half thousand years ago, the hieroglyphs have faded terribly, and in some cases erosion or weathering has destroyed their legibility. But many of them survive, and Egyptologists are able to reconstruct some of the missing parts of this text, and they are able to determine the likely sequence of events. It's a wonderful record, and I am most glad it survives. Around 580 BCE, King Apris investigated, renewed, and restored the burial of Menkaura. Subsequently, Greek authors like Herodotus and Diodorus Siculus viewed this ancient king in a positive sense. They considered Menkaura to have been a just and fair-minded ruler. Perhaps he was benefiting from the more negative reputation of his predecessors, Khufu and Kafra, but nonetheless, Menkaura enjoyed a positive afterlife, at least in antiquity. The king's monument was subsequently violated in the following centuries. At least during the medieval period, locals were able to enter the pyramid and leave Arabic inscriptions in the chambers. Then, in 1837, the Europeans arrived, and in their explorations, which involved some unorthodox and terribly destructive methods, they ultimately reopened the pyramid. Descending into it, the explorers, Vis and his associates, found the sarcophagus of Menkaura, a sarcophagus that subsequently they lost. They decided to remove it because they thought it would be destroyed, and yet when they shipped it off to England, the casket itself was lost beneath the waves. As a result, the afterlife of Menkaura seems rather ambiguous. On the one hand, he does have a positive reputation, on the other, Many of his most important furnishings, especially from his grave, have been lost to time, and occasionally, incompetence. Fortunately, many pieces do survive to reflect this king and the work of his people. The pyramid itself is a beautiful example of ancient architecture, with an elaborate and finely decorated interior. The king's statues, which I have not discussed here, are beautifully made, with evidence for incredible skill and artistry on the part of their makers. And while many pieces of Menkaura's afterlife have been destroyed, one important record survives. A coffin, furnished by a later king, preserves the name of this ruler and offers a prayer for his immortality, as he travelled into the sky to unite with his celestial mother and his earthly father. 
Menkaura is an oft-overlooked king. Even his pyramid is barely visited compared to Khufu and Khafra. And yet, out of all the Giza builders, he enjoys the best reputation, and he is still worthy of our attention today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Egypt podcast. If you are interested to learn more about Menkaura, his pyramid, and the artifacts associated with this period, you can find references in the description to this episode. For this tale, I must give special thanks to Dr. Roman Gundaka, who conducted an important study of the restoration text found on the surface of Menkaura's pyramid. Dr. Gundaka kindly provided a copy of his research with me to use in my work, and I am most grateful. Also, I would like to thank the editors of Nile Magazine, who provided relevant articles discussing elements of these monuments. Finally, I would like to thank one of my research assistants, Reuben Hutchinson Wong from the University of Birmingham. He provided additional references and notes related to the Old Kingdom and the reign of Menkaura. My thanks to all these individuals for their assistance with reference and resources. The History of Egypt podcast is supported by you, the listeners. I would like to give a special shout out to the priests, my top-tier backers on Patreon.com. The priests are most generous, and like King Aprius before him, they preserve the names of Menkaura and many ancient Egyptians, as they allow me to conduct this research full-time and bring these stories to you. My special thanks to Veronica, Mykost, TJ, Ashley, Terry, Yola, Linda, Evan, Kyla, Andy and Chelsea, and Nidin. Folks, you are all too kind, and I am eternally in your debt. That's all from me. I will see you soon. Take care, and may the sky goddess Nut, the earth god Geb, and the spirits of Menkaura and Apris preserve and protect you forever. I'll see you soon. Before we go, one last thing. Earlier in the episode, I described the discovery, removal, and then loss of the sarcophagus of Menkaura. This is a particularly tragic loss, as the stone casket was beautifully decorated with an elaborate palace facade. You may be wondering, though, if the sarcophagus was lost, how do we know what it looks like? Well, the Vis expedition, which discovered the casket, was accompanied by an illustrator, and he made a drawing of the box. Also, archaeologists working at Giza have recovered other stone sarcophagi which bear similar decorations. These caskets come from a variety of tombs, from the 4th, 5th, and later dynasties. They all have their variations and unique features, but there are enough similarities that we can compare these with the drawings of Menkaura's sarcophagus to get a fairly solid idea of what it looked like. So, at the very least, although this beautiful casket has been lost, it was not necessarily a unique item. We do still have a record of it, and because similar caskets from the same period and location have survived and are now visible in museums, we can, at least, get an idea of the ancient work. It's a silver lining, all things considered.
As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.